This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The plight of migrant workers here on temporary work visas, but without any work and without much support, was vividly brought to living rooms on the 6pm news this week by News Hub. But those scenes weren't news to other reporters who'd been working on this story that's pretty tough to report, as well as a tough one to watch. Instead of a better life, they've turned to begging. Like a beggars, we are going to the temple and eating the food there. They arrived via the accredited employer work visa scheme, but instead of jobs, they're on the breadline. We'll look at that later. But first, the Women's World Cup was fun while it lasted. Now, sadly, our team peaked too soon, but the tournament's coming to a climax this weekend in Australia, where the Matildas have made it the biggest ever TV event there. If she scores, they're into a semi-final. Oh, no! Oh, I feel a bit sick, to be honest. This week we look at how the media came to the party on that and we ask, will it leave a legacy? Saunter believes tomorrow's clash could even eclipse the 2011 Rugby World Cup final. And the All Blacks are the world champions for the second time. The 2011 Rugby World Cup final saw over 2 million uh, local viewing audience and I think cumulatively there was over 50 million globally. Numbers that could soon be humbled by the FIFA Women's World Cup. That was News Hub at 6 last Monday night, the night before the FIFA Women's World Cup semi-final between Spain and Sweden became the most watched around the world sports event ever held here. Now sadly, our football ferns peaked too soon in this World Cup when they beat Norway in Game 1 on Day 1. Wilkinson's in the middle. Wilkinson! New Zealand won. Norway nil. And even though it was all downhill and out after that for New Zealand, Kiwi fans still bought into the World Cup big time, making it bigger than the Rugby World Cup for crowds and in our media. And our sporting media, not normally moved to mention women's football much, suddenly couldn't stop. Last weekend, the tournament even moved long-time News Talk ZB sportscaster Darcy Waldegrave to unleash Kipling-esque emotions on his all-sport breakfast show. All respect to the losers. And as of midnight Sunday week, only one team will experience the unadulterated joy of ascending their sporting Sagamata, or Everest as the colonising empire called her. Darcy seemed to be saying that in this case it really was the taking part that counted as much as the winning. There is still disappointment to be swallowed in this event, still the gut-wrenching reality of falling short. For one team to stand above all, all must be present. Respect to the losers. Without you, the tournament is nothing. Intense stuff. And in a literal sense, the losers were a big part of the story as well. All the former winners of the Women's World Cup were out by the quarter-final stage. And that included the incumbent champs from the US, whose official advert didn't date too well. What's it going to take to stop this US team? Good luck with that. Well, the answer to what it would take to stop them was Sweden on penalties. Now, in turn, Spain then turned them over at New Zealand's Women's World Cup finale at Eden Park on Tuesday. You must be proud of the battle out there, though, and the way that you did fight back so quickly and, and put yourselves in with such a good chance. I mean, even though you only had sort of five minutes left in the match. Uh, yeah, maybe it's uh, easy to look that way after, but right now it's just feel like shit. And while the biggest teams getting knocked out early was a novelty, there was another significant first when newbies Morocco took on France in the round of 16. Teammate Nuhaila Benzina became the first player to wear a hijab at a World Cup, signifying yet another step forward 
as they challenge traditional norms. We wanted to prove ourselves that we too can play football at a professional level. And on Sky's coverage, much of it available for free as well on Prime TV or streamed for free by Stuff, former football fern Rosie White pointed out New Zealand could be proud to have played a part in that. You know, that is a, a huge statement um, and, you know, it's breaking traditional norms. It's, it's creating a space for people that have never had a platform like that before. Um, so I think it's pretty special to, to see that and, you know, for us to be able to host that um, is, is pretty, pretty epic. Now in Australia, another surprise packet was Jamaica. The so-called reggae girls knocked out Brazil and also had the most mothers in the squad. Three kids, me with one, I'm like, nope, never again. But then she with three. And I think we're just showing that to more than just your kids. I think the world sees that. So the Women's World Cup certainly delivered different sorts of stories for our media. And even those who really don't care about those sorts of narratives could also have a good time at the games. The amount of things they had there for the children. Dartboard where you could throw big sort of Velcro soccer balls against it. Oh, and the, and the fans too. I mean, the, the, the Swedish, you know, went to the old Swedes, had the big Oompa band there and uh, yeah, all the, the Viking stuff. It was, it was world class. It was, I mean, it was great. Now, no major event goes off quite without a hitch, and in our case, the deadly Queen Street shootings on the morning of the opening day shut down the fan zone. The Dutch weren't happy with a rock-hard cricket wicket on their Tauranga training pitch, and at least some of the Spanish squad found Palmerston North a bit too dull. And this week, football fans captain Ali Riley revealed that they were nearly late for their opener against Norway because their bus was stuck in Auckland's traffic. But even Wellington's bus-tastrophic public transport made good news for once by, by and large, standing up to the fares-free surges on game days, according to Newstalk ZB. Metlink has thanked staff for their work during the tournament, which wrapped up in the capital last week. Fares were free and we saw a phenomenal take-up of public transport as a consequence. Back on the 8th of August, Newstalk ZB was reporting this... The ninth Women's Football World Cup has become the best attended ever with the crowd at last night's match between Sweden and the USA taking the total of spectators to almost 1.4 million. The average attendance so far this year is almost 27,000, 4,500 more than in France four years ago. The record crowd for a football match in New Zealand, women's or men's, has been broken three times in Auckland since the opening of the tournament. And in Australia, it was the biggest game in town for their media as the Matildas went deep into the tournament. Matildas, 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 Matildas. Shall I stop now? (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's Matildas fever. It's going to be the biggest TV audience of the year. Some say it could be the biggest TV audience of all time. And it was for that epic quarterfinal against France, which was settled by the longest ever penalty shootout in any World Cup match. Wherever you're watching... You have got the best ticket to the most sensational drama. Can you imagine the scenes and the big screens in Brisbane, Melbourne, Perth, Sydney? And an enraptured crowd here. If Hunt scores, it's history for the Matildas. No! Saved by Jerome! I simply do not believe that. Well, they made it in the end, and The Guardian's Australian sports editor, Joe Kahn, said that meant they had also upended an established hierarchy of broadcast sport across the Tasman. It's just, it's just incomprehensible. Like, I still cannot understand how 
a men's Australian rules footy game had women's football on TVs at the same time. Like, it's just, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. Yet in Australia before the tournament, the broadcaster Channel 7 was accused of underselling it and lukewarm commercial sponsors were warned that they might miss out on a shared national moment, and some did. So in the end, thrills, spills, skills, big crowds, lots of stuff for the kids and free bus rides to the stadiums. What's not to like? It's boring. It's, you can't have 90 minutes plus 30 minutes and score no goals and not core it. But you can go, oh, it had moments of tension and excitement, all that usual stuff. But at the end of the day, it's dull. And what saves it is the penalty <laughs> shootout. As no, you well know, I'm not, disagree, I'm not, disagree, not a big... disagree. It was Mike Hosking on his breakfast show on Monday, and his sports panellists, TVNZ's Guy Havelt and Andrew Saville, couldn't convince him that the bulging stadiums proved that New Zealand really had embraced women's football. We're caught up in this because of what it is, not because it's women's sport or women's football or football. It's just an event that we've got. I, I think yes, yeah. because we were co-hosts. Exactly. But you, you take away the fact that it's females or whatever... I think the standard of football, I think the football's been outstanding. The the drama's been outstanding. Mm. And Mike Hosking was also unsure whether it was really Kiwis who were filling the stands at all. Fans, people have come, people have made a thing of it, a holiday of it. And if you come to the country, whether it be here or Australia, you buy a bunch of tickets, you're going to every game no matter what, aren't you? I mean, you know, the same people are turning up to game one, game two, game three. Japan versus the Netherlands the other day at Eden Park, forty odd thousand. Yeah, but you're not taking in the multi. You're not taking in the multicultural makeup of the New Zealand population or indeed the Australian population. That's fair. That's fair. But I still didn't think that there would be as many sellouts as there have been. These days, more than one in four New Zealanders living here were born outside this country, possibly in countries with more interest in football than you'd find here. Though, does it really matter to anyone other than Mike Hosking what kind of Kiwis were actually in those record-breaking crowds? As TVNZ's Guy Havelt pointed out, there were fears about empty seats and a lack of enthusiasm right up until the football ferns set it alight on opening day on the 20th of July. And for them, ZB's Darcy Waldegrave said this on Monday. But I'm interested in the people that thought it was going to be a mess, that thought it was going to be a train wreck, thought we'd fall on our faces. How are you feeling now? And as Tuesday's semi-final loomed large, the last World Cup match on our turf, some were even suggesting an Anzac bid for the Men's World Cup, another level again as a media and a commercial event. Though ZB's Darcy Waldegrave didn't think that was very likely, though his listeners were still ambitious. Texter suggested maybe we could switch up Tour de France for the Tour de Tiro here in New Zealand. Could work. Hey, there you go. Just extend the Tour of Southland. North considerably. This is News Talk ZB. Darcy. It remains to be seen if a Tour de Southland really would be a compelling proposition for world cycling. Probably not in the winter though. But among those arguing that the FIFA Women's World Cup was a revolutionary event for New Zealand was TVNZ's John Campbell. That it is being led by a FIFA product is truly unexpected. FIFA are revolutionary in the same way that Ronald McDonald is a vegan. And even FIFA Secretary-General Fatma Samora told a live debate in Auckland this week FIFA is a middle-aged European man riding a limousine around and stealing money. And around the world, not everyone was paying attention, even in some football-mad countries. On 9 to noon a fortnight ago, Catherine Ryan asked correspondent Daniel Schweimler in Buenos Aires whether the cup was making a mark in Argentina's media. 
And when we do see any reference to the women's football, it tends to be the kind of thing that um, trivialises what they've been doing. Team Yilma, Yilma Rodriguez of the Argentine team, she's appeared in the media simply because it was spotted when she came on the other day that she had a tattoo on her leg, Cristiano Ronaldo, on her leg rather than Leo Messi. She's got Maradona on the other leg, so that's fine. Uh, but she's been forced to defend herself in public. Why Cristiano Ronaldo and not the great legend of Argentine, male legend of Argentine football, Leo Messi. Oh dear, still more interest in the women's players' appearances rather than the way they play. So, what legacy will the biggest media event ever hosted in this country leave on the media here and around the world? I asked Australian Associated Press reporter Ben Mackay, who's based in Wellington but was at the last Women's World Cup in France and will be at tonight's final in Sydney, and senior stuff sports journalist Zoe George, who specialises in reporting on equity and equality in sport. Well, Zoe, uh, you were on RNZ's Nights programme just before the World Cup kick-off. You said, look, ticket sales will pick up, Kiwis will see it and they'll come, Uh, they'll get behind it, everything's going to be fine. Are you feeling vindicated? Because turns out you were right. <laughs> of course I was right. Uh, it was wonderful to see the support that this tournament, not just the football fans, but every team has received from New Zealanders and Australians. And it also helped the fact that the football fans won that first game. Mm. It started the tournament in a really positive way. We just saw more and more people get on, on board. Well, Ben, uh, read a story just before the tournament kicked off. Oh, I know what this one's going to be. Uh, If Australia has World Cup fever, New Zealand may have caught a cold. An enthusiasm (laughs) gap has emerged between the two co-hosts for the tournament. That was one of yours, I think. Yeah, that was was tough words, wasn't it? uh, But but it was was correct at that point, right? Yeah, it was Mm. a moment in time. And I think it it, it was borne out as well in terms of overall attendance figures. You know, some of the matches in Hamilton and Dunedin were, you know, not not as well attended. But, I mean, you could argue that Costa Rica, Zambia wasn't going to pull a crowd no matter where you put it. Now, you were at the tournament four years ago in France 2019. Now, France were the world men's champions. They won the World Cup in Russia the year before. Yep. Has this really taken it to It was level? a very different tournament just because, first of all, it was summer, so it was lovely from that perspective. All the European teams didn't have to plan their travel months in advance. The first Netherlands game wasn't especially well attended, but by the time they'd reached the final, there were hordes of them. They'd all gather in the public squares before because they'd just catch a bus to these matches down from the Netherlands. Four years down the track is actually quite a long, quite a lot of time. So, you know, it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The tournament ended for us on Tuesday with the one semi-final. Do you think people will, in the end, media-wise, around the world, be pretty much thinking of this as actually an Australian event in the end? <laughs> I mean, there have been so many rich storylines from New Zealand. And, and for me, I mean, the moment of the tournament has to be Hannah Wilkinson's goal. Just that incredible sound from Eden Park. I mean, I've only lived here for five years, but I've never heard Eden Park like that. The US were based in New Zealand as well. There's been heaps going on in New Zealand. So if you ask an, Aust- an Australian in Australia, they'd be tempted to say it was just an Australian tournament, but I, I don't think so. Some of, there are interesting stories like, for example, the first player ever to wear a hijab you know, in, in a World Cup uh, and all the way through into the, the knockout rounds for, for Morocco. Stuff like that you're obviously never going to get in the men's game. But mm. beyond that... Does the coverage reflect that it is somehow a different kind of game, a different structure? The coverage is slightly different because women's sport often is driven by social issues. And so a lot of the social issues have come to the fore. And this, I hope, is something that we continue post-World Cup as well. So things like pay 
and prize money equity. All that money that was meant to go to the players is being fed through their federations and then through to the players. But there is a lack of trust between players and some of their federations. Look at South Africa, the Falcons in Nigeria, look at Jamaica, look at Canada. All of these teams, these women, experienced inequality when it comes to money. Nigeria haven't been paid for two years. And then there's the broader issues around abuse as well, with Haiti, for example. And then FIFA going, no, you can't wear the rainbow armband. You know, queer culture is a huge part of women's sport. And to say no, well, then we just find other ways to protest. And to see the football ferns captain Ali Riley paint her nails with the trans flag was just really beautiful to see. But is that the downside of the thing being such a success on the pitch? That, that'll get drowned out once you've got a sports tournament at the point where the most, most people are. Well, let's not forget attention. that the US won back-to-back um, tournaments 2019 in the midst of a huge pay fight with, mm. with their federation. So, I mean, I, I went back through the history of some of my coverage for AAP for the Matildas. The first story I wrote was in 2014. It was a, a crisp 108-word uh, match report uh, from, a, from a match, yeah, <laughs> match they played um, against the Netherlands. Um, the next story I wrote about the Matildas was the ABC cutting free-to-air coverage of the league. So, I mean, like, these are the sort of issues that sort of roll around. In the lead-up to the tournament, I read about Channel 7 host broadcaster being accused of underselling it or not being all that interested. Sponsors being warned, look, if this takes off, you'll miss out. Was that the case? People weren't really sure how it would go. I mean, Optus is reported to pay. Optus was the main broadcaster, so Telco, like Spark Sport, they on-sold a package of matches to Channel 7, the free-to-air broadcaster, that strategy being get more eyeballs, get people sucked in, and they might want to buy the whole coverage. It's reported that Optus paid $20 million, and that package of games went to 7 for $4 million, which must be the Ooh. biggest bargain in the history of Australian sports broadcasting now. Given the numbers, that the, the Matildas' uh, match against France was the most watched match in, I think, 18 years of any, sorry, most watched television program of any sort of thing. I, I'm not sure what the New Zealand numbers are, but, like, these are genuine nation-building moments. Yeah, and Zoe, your organisation staff uh, streamed some of the Sky coverage for free. Um, so as we're pretty accustomed now, I guess, premium sports events will be for subscribers on Sky Sport if you want the lot, but Prime mm-hmm. TV screened a lot on uh, on free-to-air TV, uh, and crucially, the Ferns, three matches, it turns <laughs> out. Uh, but was, do you think that's that's a good mix? You know, I think that combination of commercial and then free-to-air is really important because we want to bring new audiences to women's sport products. And if we don't make it visible, then it's just going to fall off a cliff again. So by providing these two avenues, I think that's really important. Now, I'm really, I have to say, I'm super proud of Stuff's coverage. We had our uh, FIFA Women's World Cup hub and the team have gone hard out. It was fantastic. And most of that coverage is led by men in my team, which makes me doubly proud mm. to know that we've got male allies who believe in the coverage of women's sport and the value of women's sport. It, it started heaps before the tournament as yeah. well, like from the draw all the way through. There was so much. Like, if you wanted to know anything about the football ferns, it was in there. It was <laughs> fantastic. I'm pleased to be, Well, we're doing the same thing for the All Blacks during the Rugby World Cup, uh, and we're also Sorry, going... I'm, I'm less interested. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're also covering WXV, which is the mini women's Rugby oh, yeah. World Cup coming to New Zealand in October and early November, which will be epic. I can't wait to watch the Black Ferns. Millions of people have tuned in, either whether it's through Sky or or via our content. So what is the commitment going forward and what is the strategy going forward to ensure we capitalise on this wave? So 
we need all media organisations to make a commitment to women's sport, uh, equity and equality in our coverage. So even if they're not the rights holders or directly benefit, you'd be looking for... Everyone has a role to play. And it shouldn't just matter whether it's, uh, you know, a New Zealand team that's, uh, uh, you know, playing. It, it could be that we're going to commit to covering the Central Pulse this season and netball or whatever it is, making sure. Farah Palmer Cup in rugby. At the moment, we're currently sitting for all women's sports coverage in the sports coverage ecosphere. We're looking at about 28% overall, which is a huge improvement from what it was several years ago or even three and a half years ago where it sat at 12%. So we are seeing a commitment from media organisations, but we can always do more, right? Yeah, Sky TV, uh, before the Tokyo Olympics, I think we did a program about them. They had decided a strategy that they called side by side, saying we will devote equal um, coverage. So I'd that say, was that was their strategy. But in Australia, Ben, look, this has gone a whole other level in terms yeah. of the cut-through. Is it going to be the same thing? I mean, just to speak about about my company as well, I mean, Australian Associated Press, I mean, we've made the decision that we'll cover every A-League women's match in addition to every A-League men's match, and we have done for some time. There will, there will obviously be a drop-off from the highs of this tournament. But, you know, from my perspective, it'd be great to have somebody else apart from me and <laughs> Phil Rollo, the um, Wellington-based stuff reporter in the Phoenix press box, come <laughs> kick off for the A-League women in October. And FIFA really have been dragged kicking and screaming to this party. And they still continue to make completely tone-deaf decisions like announcing an all-male commentary team for their world feed for the tournament. I mean, it's outrageous that every host city got a broadcaster for FIFA's world stream that goes out. They were all men. And they they were all men with British-sounding accents. So this Mm. is what the world of football you know, FIFA imagines it as, you can only hope that this month and and the blockbuster numbers that they would have got, because don't forget they're making all the money from the tickets and the broadcasting deals, will have opened their eyes a little bit. So, I mean, I I had to laugh the other day, maybe a couple of days ago when they announced the release of the tender to screen, in to broadcast in Australia the next coming World Cups for both men's and women's. So they've they've decided this might be an opportune time to go to market with their broadcasting Mm. rights in Australia. Obviously, to try and maximise the size of the deal. I mean, this is this is what makes them what they are. They 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 are an incredibly wealthy, you know, top heavy, bloated, uh, executive bloated organisation in Switzerland. Four billion US dollars in the bank from their uh, expert husbandry of the world's most popular sport over the years. So you know, they've got to spend it somehow. They do. They do. You know, many of us, particularly in the women's sport movement, have been lifting our voices and speaking up for decades and we've been told to sit down and be quiet well we're not going to sit down and be quiet anymore you know for me I really hope that this is the start of something new and fresh and exciting and it's a wave that everyone wants to be part of not just media it also comes down to sports bodies giving equal opportunities but it also comes down to our audiences as well our listeners and our readers and one little action can make a huge difference to that wave so clicking on a story or listening to an interview, sharing that interview on social media, following your favourite player, joining your favourite sports team as a season member or joining your favourite club as a player or a coach or a ref or sitting on a board because every little bit helps this movement. Media and and sponsors who engage with women's sport are more likely to be looked favourably from fans and they're more likely to engage with their content and their products. And then we're bringing in new audiences, new markets. We're exposing a whole bunch of new people to women's in sport. One of the things in New Zealand, and actually probably it's the same in Australia, is that we've got a lack of female journalists in sport. But what we've seen, particularly over the last 18 months with the cricket, rugby and now football World Cups, is that 
Male allies within our teams are picking up and covering women's sport, and they're the ones who are taking it forward. So 80% of bylines of women's sports coverage are men. So men are now writing about women's sport. It's not just women anymore. I was a bit taken aback when I moved here. New Zealand press boxes are so blokey. I mean, look at the travelling press pack to cover the All Blacks. Yeah, yeah. But do you know what? What I loved covering Netherlands, USA here in Wellington, I went down to the mix zone. Men were outnumbered by women. It was incredible. Uh, I bumped into a New York Times journalist and we had a good chat and it was just amazing to see the number of female sports journalists covering this tournament. Um, but for now, it's going to take our male allies in our newsrooms, including our sports editors, to recognise that it's important to cover women's sport, that there is a market for it, there is a, an audience for it. And this is how we grow our audience base. I'd say as well, like, the, the players deserve it. They've yeah. worked so hard that, you know, it's time to, to up standards and up professionalism in these leagues. That was Ben Mackay, reporter for the Australian Associated Press News Agency, who's based here in Wellington, but will be at this weekend's final in Sydney, and senior stuff sports journalist Zoe George, who specialises in reporting on equity and equality in our sport. Last Wednesday night, Australia's record-breaking Matildas were taking on England in that semi-final, making it a bit harder for Media Watch to break any records here on RNZ National in our weekly catch-up with Knights, Midweek Media Watch. I talked to Mark Leishman about that, some new changes to TV news at NewsHub, some rather overwrought claims of criminal collusion in our media, as well as the political frenzy fired up by Labour's confirmation it wants to take GST off fresh and frozen fruit and veggies which led to the Prime Minister being confronted with some at his post-Cabinet media conference. It's frozen stir-fry. All right, thank you. This one's got grilled capsicum in it. Would that... Th- thank you, everybody. Would that Cheers. be included? If you missed this week's Midweek Media Watch, you'll find it on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. This week, fresh data from Stats NZ revealed that the annual net migration rise for the year to June was the biggest it's been since pre-pandemic times three years ago. Almost 87,000 more people now live here, in spite of thousands of other citizens heading to Australia. Now, Stats NZ said those recent gains were driven by migrants from the Philippines, China, South Africa, Fiji and India. But the same day that was announced, those watching the 6pm news from NewsHub saw a startling account of some of them who were bitterly regretting their decision to come. And as Hayden Donnell reports, it wasn't the first time that reporters have lifted the lid on the treatment of migrant workers, even though it's a very difficult story to tell. Uh, I've got to say, as a Kiwi, it was pretty embarrassing standing there last night. Uh, And, you know, I don't think any of us should accept this as normal. The scheme may be working well generally, but this surely cannot continue. That's Nick Truebridge talking to News Hub at 6. Presenters Samantha Hayes and Mike McRoberts after finding 40 migrant workers living in a filthy, overcrowded house in Papakura. The workers had called the police after running out of food and surviving on water for days. Three days we are not. We don't have nothing to eat, only just drinking water. No food. No food, nothing. No food, sir. No food, sir. Only drinking water. Drinking water. Truebridge followed that with another story the following night about four more substandard properties crowded with migrant workers. Here he is taking the News Hub camera on a tour of one of those. Six people in this room alone, it would only be 
let's say, four metres by five metres. And as we come through here, the bathroom, there's only one in the entire house. We're told there's a line to use it every morning. But it's also what you can't see. There's a smell of sewage from underneath the home. One of the occupants tells us the plumbing is broken. That sounds less than ideal. And Truebridge explained the migrants had been subjected to those conditions after trying to find a better life applying under the accredited employer work visa scheme. He's not the only one who's been covering the plight of workers suckered in by offshore immigration agents illegally selling non-existent jobs under that scheme, which Immigration NZ acknowledges is a higher trust model than the six visa options it replaced about a year ago. At RNZ, Lucy Sia has been telling the stories of migrants allegedly exploited and left all but destitute after being told they're heading into decent jobs. Here's one, Keisha Kung, describing how she survived after travelling to Dunedin for work that never materialised. I waited for two weeks, in between when there was no food to eat. I'd go to the back mountain to forage for wild vegetables and just eat it with instant noodles. On Wednesday, the New Zealand Herald's Lincoln Tan reported that 164 accredited employers are under investigation for migrant exploitation. At his online newsletter, The Kaka, Bernard Hickey has called these scams a symptom of our churn and burn economy. There was a time New Zealand, or at least its former PM John Key, aspired to become the Switzerland of the South Pacific, providing high-value financial services to the world's richest families. Instead, we've become a version of the Dubai of the South Pacific, allowing fraudulent agents and fly-by-night firms to bring in desperate and poor workers with suggestions of high-paid jobs and residency, only to pull the rug out from under their feet and leaving them indebted and even more desperate. And at Stuff, National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen has been following this story for months, first reporting in April on migrants who were left out of a job and penniless after paying thousands of dollars to agents promising lucrative work. This reporting has prompted Immigration Minister Andrew Little to order an urgent review of the accredited employer visa scheme after initially denying any link between it and the apparent rise in migrant exploitation. This reporting has led directly to improvements in workers' lives in several cases. In June, Kilgallen reported on Bao Guao, who was surviving on instant noodles after going deeply into debt to get a job that laid him off within days. Guao was offered a full-time job at the Papakura door manufacturer Superior Doors after its owner Aaron Davidson was moved by his plight. Here he is talking about his new job through some translation software. Despite the language barrier, Bao Guao, who has adopted the English name Mike, has settled in well, although he deeply misses his family back home. I miss my Chinese family very much. I am very happy to work here, and our boss, Eri, our factory director and the staff below, they are very warm to me. At the same time, they often come to help me, and I work very well here. For Truebridge, it's early days on this beat, but those Papakuda workers from his first story who were going without food have been fed. 
Now he says they're on the lookout for work. Police have been feeding them as well as various migrant networks, but what they really need, and I guess this is a bit of a shout-out tonight, is jobs from Kiwi businesses who might need things like drivers uh, or welders. So they're all good for food, but if there's anyone out there who needs a driver, well, there's certainly... It would appear to be some looking for jobs. This seems to be a classic case of journalism doing what it's meant to, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. But it's notable that it took 40 people running out of food in a sodden, crammed house for the story to make the 6pm news. The dire reality of these migrants' plight may hint at a sense of impunity from their immigration agents or their sometimes elusive employers. The workers often don't have a support network in New Zealand. They're in a precarious economic situation and many of them don't speak English. As a result, they don't always get the attention of our authorities or our media. I asked Steve Kilgallen how he started covering these stories and whether there's anything more the media can do to ensure migrants have their voices heard. Kia ora, Steve, and welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. So how long have you been covering migrant exploitation and what was it that switched you on to it as this topic for extensive investigation? Um, I, th- I think about five or six years, um, and there's probably two reasons, one altruistic, one not. Um, as a journalist, you're always looking to fish in the pond where no one else is fishing. And um, at, the, at the time, with the exception of Lincoln Town at the Herald, not, nobody was really looking at this kind of stuff. And... After I wrote my first story about it, I realised that there was just it was just everywhere. And the second reason, I'm always interested in stories where you, you hope there might be a potential positive outcome from them. Some of these stories were having a good outcome for the people I wrote about, and if I kept writing them, you know, maybe we might see some systemic change, but at least we'd see changes in the lives of these people who've been brought here and sold a dream and, um, you know, were left in horrific living conditions. But is it worse than ever now? I think we're seeing a lot more attention on it now than we have for some time. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Um, there's some journalists doing some really good stuff, Dilipa Fonseca and Lucy Shah, Nick Trubridge this week. It's been there ever since uh, probably National relaxed the controls on student visas uh, when Stephen Joyce was the minister. We got a massive influx of Punjabi Indian students moving into those um, quite questionable sort of business qualifications and then being churned out the other side into jobs where they were exploited. I just think at the time, as a country, we didn't pay a huge amount of attention to that. It's just the manner in how these guys are exploited has changed over time as the visa system's changed, I think. The rationale for the the accredited visa was that it tidied up quite a complicated system with six six or seven different ways of people bringing people in, but I think what it has done has made it a lot easier to bring people in. And when you make... It easier for people and less hurdles to jump through. I think that makes it easier for you to exploit migrants. And we're a year into the system, so I think we're now seeing the downstream. of. Um, but aspects of it have always been there. I mean, you know, the, the aspect of premiums where you pay for a visa, that's kind of always been there. It's just hitting quite a high level now. I mean, the, the going rate seems to be about $30,000 to buy a visa offshore. It's the overarching cause and the reason why this is so bad, because these are people often with very few support networks in New Zealand society. They have little power influence. They don't have a lot of money because they've paid all that money for a visa. Does that just make them easier to exploit and to do stuff like make them hole up in a house with 39 other men? Oh, absolutely. Probably spoken to hundreds of migrants over the last few years and almost all of them arrive with very little understanding of our legal system and the rights that are open to them. And some of them are coming from legal systems that, that are 
have an element of corruption in any way, so they don't have a lot of faith that anything will be done. None of them really know what they can do unless they happen to chance upon one of the migrant um, rights groups or upon a, a, an advocate. And that was my initial way into finding these stories. I've worked quite hard over the last few years to try and get links into migrant communities because, yeah, they're not, they're not the average reader. They're not going to ring you up and tell you about, about it. You've got to go and find them. Is there a little bit of a media criticism in that? that uh, can you imagine these stories getting so bad? You know, Nick Truebridge this week, 40 men in a house in Papakura with no food. You know, if that was well-to-do Pākehā like you or I in these sort of circumstances? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've got a working theory that our, our, our newsrooms sort of 10, 15 years ago particularly were very white, very middle class, and what what we wrote about really reflected what was going on in Greylin or, or North Coat Point. Um, I think we've moved on a bit from that. We've diversified our newsrooms, and that's a great thing because we've diversified the stories that we find because people write about what they know and what's around them. We have a society that sort of functions on low-wage migrants running our petrol stations and our liquor stores, and we don't really look at the circumstances in which they're there working for us. There's an element of collective blindness that we don't really want to know about it. That's right. So maybe there's an element of convenience and not actually digging too deep into the circumstances of these people. Do you think it is, again, that old problem as well? What you say, that the newsrooms of our country maybe consciously or unconsciously envisage their audience to be probably relatively well-off, probably Pākehā, maybe a homeowner. I mean, why do we have big real estate sections in every newspaper in the country, you know? You know, it's our job to um, speak to everybody in New Zealand, you know? You know, that, that sort of talks to how you tell the stories as well. I spent a lot of years writing about um, poker machine frauds, and I learned very quickly that the word poker machine is a massive turn-off to the audience, so how do you feed them the broccoli and still give them the cheese sauce, right? So you find a different way of telling the story. And there's an element of that with the migrant exploitation stuff, you know. I've spoken to people who go, oh, I didn't read your story because I, I, I couldn't follow the names. There was, you know, too many too many people singing the story and da-da-da. You've got to work with those um, sort of inbuilt prejudices and tell a story in a human way that, you know, everybody in the country can relate to. Because ultimately, when I have done that well, I get a lot of emails from people saying, as a New Zealander, this disgusts me, this is not what I believe in. Can I help these guys? and genuine offers of help. Appealing to that New Zealand sense of fairness and justice, right? Because that's sort of what you did with Balguel recently, and he's got a job now, I guess, because of your reporting. Was that what you did there? Just like, this is unjust, we can do better? 100% what I tried to do, yeah. Over time, I've realised that the issues are important, but you, you have to present a human face of the issues. You have to engage the audience, say, here is a person just like you, here is their backstory. Here is how they've come to be here. Generally, through no, no fault of their own, the situation they're in, if you were them, you would have made the same decisions. And then you can get into the system issues of why it's not fair. And in, in, in his case, the morning that story ran, I dropped my kids at school and I'd had five phone calls, ten emails already, like people genuinely saying, can we give him a job, can we help? And then Aaron Davidson, who ran a company in Papakura making doors, followed through and gave him a job and uh, Balguel has now gone on to a, a job that matches his skills, he was a carpenter. But there's been plenty of others I've written about who've had terrible outcomes. You mentioned that we all have real estate sections that fund our papers and that's probably appealing to a well-to-do audience and that's where the money is. 
does that make it difficult to tell the stories of people that basically have no money and are in precarious situations? Does that make it harder to give people the broccoli with the cheese sauce, as you say? Um, it does, but to be fair to stuff, they've always allowed me to write about what I want to, want to write about, quite unsexy issues on the surface over the years, you know, liquor and gambling and migrant exploitation and fraudsters and, you know, none of it's particularly cheerful stuff, but they've allowed me to chase around after it because it's what interests me. So You've got um, to make it clickable, though, right? Is that what the challenge is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything's got to be readable, right? We're not, we're not writing um, academic essays for our master's degrees, right? If you're half decent as a journalist, then, then it should be clickable and readable. And the aim is that people will read it to the end. And my stuff seems to do pretty well, as does the other people writing in this area. I mean, Nick's had a lot of follow with that story this week and, and good on him. So, yeah, the challenge is always to make it very, very readable from the first sentence, and that's by giving the reader a massive dose of emotion in the first three or four paragraphs. How do you do that? I mean, in, in Bao's case, it was um, the fact that he had so little money he was eating half a packet of instant noodles Just for those lunch. little vignettes, right, of yeah. humanity that people connect to. Yeah, so my question to them is always, how do you feel? And you always get an interesting answer. They'll always tell you how they're feeling and what the reality of their life is, and your job is to is to translate that into a way that's immediately um, catches people's attention, I suppose. You mentioned that you were the only person fishing in this pond for a while. Has it been encouraging recently to see Nick Truebridge on the TV, Lucy Sia, uh, Lincoln Tan, obviously, for a long time, uh, these different people that are following this story and bringing it to more attention? Oh, I mean, on one hand, it's great, it's brilliant, it should be done. On the other hand, for me, selfishly, it makes it, makes it harder. I haven't got it to myself. Um, and like you say, Lincoln was doing it before I was doing it, so all props to him. And when I started off, I was doing it with Dilipa Fonseca, who's a great journalist as well. We should be telling these stories, so it's great that everybody is, you know. For me, the stories I want to write about is the, the, the little guy being um, treated badly by the big guy in whatever setting that is. And are you actually hopeful that there will be change now that Andrew Little has commissioned this urgent review into the accredited employer work visa scheme this week? What, what writing about this round has taught me is that the um, the people who run these exploitation schemes are are pretty shrewd and clever operators. Um, it's a bit like the drugs trade, right? You, you disrupt one way of doing it and they'll find another. Um, I think this particular set of visa regulations we've got at the minute do need urgently looking at and tidying up. Yeah, so you'll be covering this for some time yet. I expect so. Thank you very much for joining me, Steve. No worries, thanks. That was Steve Kilgallen, a senior correspondent at Stuff, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about how he and other journalists have lifted the lid on the plight of migrant workers, lured here with the promise of jobs, which end up being either short-term or non-existent. And on Thursday, as we heard earlier, Immigration Minister Andrew Little ordered an urgent independent review of how the scheme is being operated after serious concerns that checks of potential accredited employers were not being carried out. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media next Wednesday after the 10pm news with Midweek Media Watch during nights. And then back again at the same time next weekend with more Media Watch here on RNZ National.